VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, so wrong that it's right. What's happening with Manchester United? As Liverpool prepare to face them in the Premier League, we ask, is Jurgen Klopp's side in the form of their lives? Elsewhere, could Phil Foden become England's greatest? And who should Newcastle appoint as their new boss? This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wozencroft. We're going to be reflecting uh, on another special week in the Champions League today. We'll also take a look at events at Newcastle with Steve Bruce out the door. But uh, joining me today, joining us today, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson and Ian Hawkey. Gentlemen, how are you? Pretty good, thank thank you. you. Got to start with you, Ian, in Barcelona, no less. Before we came on, um, you were asked what the best thing about Spain is and you said it's it's cloudy slash overcast. So please (laughs) tell me the football was at least better better than that especially with Barcelona because it's been it's been gloomy to use a weather uh, metaphor uh, for quite a while with Barca at the moment and they've got a huge game coming up this weekend too uh, yes well they've now they've won two matches in succession uh, this week which is uh, a real uptick for them you know by recent standards uh, the first one uh, home to Valencia with a, a decent sized crowd which is still you know still a novelty in Spain um, I think was quite exhilarating for the manager, Ronald Koeman, who's under a great deal of pressure and, and you know, the fans who were there. Some good pieces of news. Ansu Fati, who is back from a very long injury, uh, scored again and looks exciting every time he touches the ball. Um, and he's just renewed his um, contract with Barcelona. So they're all thrilled about that. Well, as we say, big game coming up for, for Barcelona this weekend against Real Madrid. They had a decent win in the Champions League. Uh, this week as well. Uh, just quickly, Ian, because it's such a huge game, uh, do you think Barcelona can win it and make it three in a row? I'd be quite surprised if Barcelona won. Um, I think they're very, they're still very wobbly. They were they were dull and functional against a very defensive Dinamo Kiev last night to to get their first points in the Champions League. And and Madrid Madrid looked quite exciting. I mean, we talk about Ansu coming into a bit of form. Uh, Vinicius Jr. is is playing wonderfully at the moment and and scoring goals, adding goals to his his various tricks. Uh, so I think I think Madrid are far more potent and I, and I think Madrid would be disappointed if they if they don't come here and win. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting game. Massive weekend ahead anyway across European football. Loads of big derby matches. We're going to talk about Manchester United against Liverpool in a short while. But let's reflect on what happened to the English clubs as a whole in the Champions League this week. And we'll start with Manchester United. It was another comeback victory, another Cristiano Ronaldo winner at Old Trafford. United coming from two goals down to beat Atalanta 3-2 and move to the top of Group F at the halfway stage. United on six points. Atalanta and Villarreal on four young boys on three points but it was another match where we have to say it papered over the cracks didn't it for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer 22 shots 56% possession but once again just so easy to play through Gregor a 4-2-4 formation was highlighted uh, by Paul Scholes their former midfielder yesterday wasn't too happy about that approach it it didn't work can you tell me what Solskjaer is trying to do um, that's not an easy question to answer, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, you know, the the first half was 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 peculiar. I mean, there was although they put he put Fred and McTominay back in midfield. Uh, you're right in saying there was just so much space around them, and you know, as industrious as that pair are, it doesn't matter if there's too much space around them; they're just running around like headless chickens, really. Um, and you have to also see the 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 defence as well. I mean, the, the first goal. It was far too easy to, to kind of to get an overload down the right hand side, and then McTominay was the one following following the the, the goal score, scorer Pasalic into the box into the six yard box, and Maguire and Lindelof were kind of nowhere to be seen. And that happened in the second half too. There was one Fred made a really vital clearance in the in the six yard box. It's just not it's not right there. The central defence as well. If Maguire and Lindelof are together, it's not it's not the one. Um, so having said all that, it was still managed to be a highly entertaining game. I mean, Manchester United had lots of lots of chances even in the first half. Rashford looking very energetic if rusty in front of goal. He had some some good chances. Um you know, there was looked like Ronaldo dropping in and the wingers make running from outside to in. That looked like it, you know, there was some potential in that. Um but you're right, they were just far too open and it it kind of had a bit of a, an end of days feeling in the first half. It's, you thought watching this, we could be witnessing the the beginning of the end, but then <laughs> once again, Manchester United and Solskjaer, I suppose you have to give them credit. Uh, they found something from somewhere, and and Ronaldo found a Ronaldo moment at the death to 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 make it a kind of rousing night. Although, as you say, it is papering over cracks, undoubtedly. Tom, there was a little bit of an argument watching the TV between two former Manchester United players, Rio Ferdinand and Paul Scholes. Paul Scholes, a bit like me, down in the dumps, couldn't forget the first half performance, he said, despite the victory. Rio Ferdinand, delighted, um, you know, saying, you know, that's what you want to see, that comeback. How did you see it? Was that a performance for Manchester United fans to be happy about? Well, me and Paul Scholes are both from Salford, so I'm obviously going to side with Scholesy. Um I mean, it was another, we've talked about it before. It was triumph and disaster from the sublime to the ridiculous, the ridiculous to the sublime. This is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester United. He hits these points of, as Gregor said, nearly, nearly the end. And then miraculously from somewhere, they summon up a comeback, a performance, either a great performance against a really impressive team and win, or they have a great, great night at Old Trafford, as Robbie Savage kept saying, one of these great nights. But it doesn't change the fact that they still looked sluggish, I thought, apart from when they were 2-0 down. The pressing still wasn't there across the pitch. The, it still didn't seem that 
cohesive, I thought. And I mean, also, the defending from set pieces has got to start to be a worry, hasn't it? With the goals they conceded against Leicester and that header. Where, I mean, Harry Maguire's defending. I thought that that's what his you know, modus operandi was supposed to be. I'm, I'm the guy who takes charge when there's balls coming into the box. So I definitely side with Paul Scholes uh, and not, not just because of uh, where we, where we were born, but yeah, it's I, definitely not a great sign for United. I don't think. And now the old and born fans are, are getting in touch with us saying, don't you dare call Scholes the Salford lad. He's, <laughs> he's old definitely and from Salford. He, he supports <laughs> Oldham, but he's definitely from Salford. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll take that on the shin then. Um, Ian, what did you make of of Manchester United? Pogba on the bench, as we mentioned, Fred and McTominay were back together. They seem far too open. I think the biggest concern for me is that that there doesn't seem to be an answer. We we can all outline the problems, but I wonder why Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his coaching team haven't yet found an answer. You would have expected it to have been addressed by now. Well, I, I, they, uh, as Tom's pointed out, and as, as the record shows, um, they do find answers very, very regularly, you know, in the last 10 minutes or so. Um, the, you know, you, you say papering over cracks, and clearly there are, you know, there are, there are dysfunctional aspects to the team, but, but God, you, you'd want them to wallpaper your cracks, wouldn't you? Yeah, and, and uh, I don't know. There, there, there seems to be within the club, um, you know, more faith than 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 from a, you know, from a lot of supporters, um, like yourself, Hugh. Um, I, I, I mean, I think possibly the key the key questions are going to come in what remains of this group, which they now have obviously far better control of. But they've got to play Atalanta again, and they've got to play Villarreal again, and both those teams will know. Where those cracks are, and and you know, I, I suspect we're going to be on the edge of our seats again. Just on the um, on 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 the defending, it's uh, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that we're going into Manchester United versus Liverpool with Maguire, you know, under scrutiny and 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 not in great form, and and equally, you know, Van Dijk has just had a very very rare off day at. Um, uh, tap out to go Madrid. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we can look forward to lots of goals in that one. Very quickly, I think the most significant thing to me that happened in that Manchester United game was the boos at halftime. Yes, they were 2-0 down, so it's obvious, it's easy thing to say, but in Solskjaer's kind of time, the, that kind of goodwill and altogetherness to me is what has saved him on so many occasions and got the people behind him got the fans behind him in a broader sense. Yes, he's playing the kids. It's fine. You know, he's better than Mourinho. The boos at halftime to me were kind of, you're on notice now, mate. Like you've, you've, you've properly, you've properly been warned. You've got Old Trafford booing you at halftime. To me, that seemed a little bit, a little bit of a worry, even if you do then come back and win three, two. Also, I would, if you're looking for answers, like the, the clearest one to me is that there's too much space between United's defence and the top end of the pitch. It's that it's not it's not always kind of you know being compact as a as a unit from, you know across the pitch. It's that space and that's that's about bravery. That's about the defenders being brave enough to step up and there've been relationships between them and the midfielders in front of them and actually having players in front of them like Fernandez and whoever Pogba whoever it is kind of being in part of that shape. And there does look like too much of a disconnect. So it's kind of, I think schools referenced that as well. It's like the the back four plus the two midfielders and then the rest are like 
do what they want in a defensive aspect from a defensive point of view that's that's not sustainable um another thing is a lot you know people a lot of pundits are saying over the last week or so that Solskjaer needs to find a way to fit all these this kind of galaxy of stars into the starting 11 no he doesn't he needs to find the best starting 11 to win the game and there's too much there's too much discussion about accommodating players i think and you put pogba on the bench you put you know, he's put player, Sancho on the bench. If if they're not if they're not going to be part of a, a functional team to win a game, then that's that's the future. That's ne- what needs to happen. I know it looks looks daft when you've got them on the bench and you're playing Fred and McTominay in midfield, but if they're if they have more sound foundation for Man United to win games, then that's what he's got to do. His challenge is keeping them happy. That's his challenge. But his challenge is not fitting all these players and accommodating. You know, you could talk. Alison was saying last week you've got to build a team around Ronaldo. You can't build a team around. Two or three players. Fernandez, another one. You think sometimes you've got to accommodate him a little bit from a defensive point of view. You can't fit three players, three or four players into a team and say we've got to, you know, we've got to fit them in. We've got to accommodate them. That doesn't work. So if he's going back to playing Fred and McTominay midfield, do it. Stick, stick by it. Stand by your guns and make the other players have to work to get into the team in front of them. Just on the rhetoric around uh, Solskjaer and Manchester United at the moment, there have been some ex-players that are highly critical. Others, in the shape of Gary Neville, pretty open that they're not going to ask for the manager to, to ever be sacked. Um, do you, do you, I, I think you mentioned it in terms of the fans now, but Gregor, I'll come back to you on this. In fact, Ian, I'll go to you on this. Do you feel like the mood around Solskjaer is, is finally changing? You know, so many people admit, yes, he's done a good job, but it has reached the point now where it's not good enough. Do you think that's all about the players that have come into the squad this summer? Um, no, less uh, less to do with, um, you, know, you can't, it's it's hard to, to, to pin transfer policy on any manager these days, especially at a, uh, a club like uh, Manchester United. And, you know, the, obviously the key transfer was was a no-brainer for both him and, and the executives. Um, the uh, but, but Tom makes a good point that... Um, it, the the booing last night um yes it is a potential watershed for for those who go to old trafford i i i just don't get the sense that that we're anywhere near a last straw upstairs at, at manchester united with the current manager um as i say i think if 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 there was a possibility of another group stage elimination from the champions league yeah that could that could change and you know i, I if something if something very bad happens on on Sunday from a Manchester United point of view, yes, I think you know we will we will get a an avalanche of uh, anti Solskjaer, but not yet. The thing is about Manchester United, and yes, we have to reflect on the fact that they did win the game, and it was Cristiano Ronaldo once again, and it was a late winner, and they came from two goals down. But the the issue is that, of course, even early in the season, we know that if Manchester United continue like this, although there might be some great moments, they might get to a semi final here or there. They're not. They're not going to do anything particularly special in terms of the major competition. So, do Manchester United write off another season? You know, maybe write off is a strong term, but are they prepared to waste another season when they can see at this point in time that they they can't produce what Chelsea, what what Liverpool, what Manchester City are producing, and even when it comes to the Champions League, another couple of clubs are producing right now. Tom, what do you think? I think you you slightly touched on it there, and. Ian mentioned it with the signings. That's partly the problem Solskjaer's got this season. You know, like he he has reflected on we've improved every season, and to an extent that's true. And their league position 
has improved. And so from the outset, you could look at it and go, yeah, he's, he's doing a doing a good job. But the problem he's got is that Liverpool look not quite back to their best, but certainly a lot better than they were last season. Chelsea are vastly improved, of course, under Thomas Tuchel. And United themselves have made quite a lot of standout signings this summer. So you've got opponents getting better around you, your own team making big name signings. The combination of those two things, if he then can't compete with those better players with improving teams around him, that then becomes incredibly difficult, I think. But who are you asking the question to? Who, who's, who, are you, who are you saying are you going to be willing to waste a new season? The fans? Maybe, maybe not. The owners? Absolutely. If he gets in the Champions League, they've signed players who are bringing in, <laughs> bringing in more money from various revenue streams. I think we know. I think we already know the answer to that. It's not like, you know, they just want to see him keeping them in, in and around the European places. Obviously, they want to see progression. They would want in an ideal world to see him challenging for the for the Premier League, but I don't think it's I don't think it's done anywhere near enough for them to think about sacking him. Okay, there's going to be more of Manchester United, I'm sure, in the coming uh, weeks and months when it comes to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's a difficult run of games at the moment. Before we look ahead to their next one, a meeting with Liverpool in the Premier League this weekend. Let's talk about another great game in the Champions League. It came in Group B. Liverpool's lead at the top now five points after their 3-2 win over Atletico Madrid. It was a pretty mad game. Liverpool at top of the group on nine points. Atletico and Porto both with four AC Milan, pointless at the moment. Liverpool went two up in the game. Two from Antoine Griezmann brought Atleti level before a moment of madness allowed Mo Salah to score the winner from the spot. Ian, do you think Liverpool deserved to win that game? Oh, that, that's a good question. I, uh, yes, I think I think by, by a very narrow margin, yes. And, and you know, they really took, uh, they took very impressive control at the start before before losing a lot of control didn't they um but uh, yeah yeah b- b- very narrowly and and you know and atleti got panicked at the wrong moments so um i guess uh i guess by that token atletico let themselves down a little bit against um against a you know a, a confident and mostly very competent uh liverpool but it was a, it was a fantastic watch wasn't it um, and it's now become, you know, it, the nice thing about these back-to-back games is that, is that you know, this 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 rivalry is now developing into into quite a spiky and and generally extremely entertaining and and hard to predict one uh, following what happened at Anfield last year. So um, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm really looking forward to uh, to the rematch at Anfield whenever it is in in less than two weeks. Couple time, weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned it already, Ian. Um, Gregor, I'll ask you about this, though. Liverpool's defence, uncharacteristically shaky, you've got to say, in particular, Virgil van Dijk. Is he is he just still getting back to 100% match fitness and, and sharpness, or was there a bigger issue? Because I think Jurgen Klopp said after the game, you know, the goals were our fault. There were too many spaces in between the lines. Naby Keita was substituted. Fabinho came on at half-time. Yeah, that can, that can all be true, but there's no doubt that Griezmann's uh, first, I think it was when Van Dyke's body shape was just completely wrong. It was, you know, it was quite jarring to see him make a mistake like that. And he he tried to turn round, and as he was turning, Griezmann was collecting the ball and going the other way, and he was out of the game completely. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard. You, you could you could you could easily think that that was some you know a little bit of lack of sharpness. He's still getting that back, perhaps a little bit of fatigue, a lot of football. Um, 
you know, you could it could be something bigger at play, and that he's you know perhaps not moving quite as freely still. Um, but we've not seen much of this. I think this, we have to say that he's still been pretty imperious every time I've seen him play this season so far. Um, but yeah, it was a bit jarring because you just never see him make a mistake. <laughs> Yeah, never, never. Tom, how entertained were you by this game? Naby Keita, I said he got substituted, but what a goal he scored. Mo Salah looked brilliant once again in, in virtually scoring the opener. Did everything but get the goal himself. Um, it had everything as well. A, a red card for Antoine Griezmann for trying to take Roberto Firmino's head off. Um, the penalty, oh my, oh my word. I'll come to Gregor in a minute on the penalty, but the game had everything, Tom. Yeah, one of the games of the season, undoubtedly. And I think... You perhaps have hinted there that you think it was a red card. We can debate about Griezmann's high foot, but I just found myself well, feeling... Do, let's do it then. Yeah, yeah, well, I just, just very, very briefly, I found myself feeling very sorry for myself, if nothing else, because I thought he was brilliant. It was like watching Antoine Griezmann, you know, we've touched on Barcelona and him being stuck there and not becoming the player that he could be. He looked fantastic and I was just... I was sorry for him. I was sorry for Atleti. I was sorry for me watching the game that he got sent off because I felt like it disrupted the flow of the slightly mad game. I think watching it back, it's the old eyes on the ball. The eyes on the ball thing. It's the eyes on the ball thing. He's looking at the ball. It's coming over his head. He can't see Firmino. If you make contact with a player, I think it's your studs. in the head, it's a red card, isn't it? We've we've had this argument many times. I I found it harsh. Like no, eyes on, he's, he's watching the ball come over his head and eyes on the ball and then he lifts his foot and he... As I always say about these, if you thought no one was there, would you try and control the ball six foot in the air? No, you wouldn't. Yeah, he definitely would have. He 100% would have. He knows that the players are in the area. Otherwise it would have bounced and it would be in further... Yeah, you can control it four feet in the air if no one's there. Why would you... So you're telling me that if no one was around him... He had to stretch If no one was around him... The ball's not about to go off the pitch, right? If no one was around he him, knows no you're all telling me... Him. That's pointless. He knows that no, no I'm one's saying, He doesn't I'm saying know if, the proximity. If, if no one was around him, if, if he knew that no one was around him, right? Say he's, he's in the half on his own and the ball gets floated over his shoulder. You're telling me he goes six foot in the air to control it when he knows no one's there. Maybe no, he's I'd, say, I'd say five and a he half. He knows he's got to get to it quickly. He knows someone's in the vicinity. He no, knows I, he has to get to the ball quickly. So he goes for it as quick as possible. He puts his foot in the air and he makes contact with someone's head. It's dangerous play. It's a red card. I don't know what we're talking about. The truth is, this is pointless because refereeing and you know, officiating is now outcome biased. Like, you see someone break a leg in a tackle or, you know, seriously injure themselves, even though it's not, a, it's barely a foul. It's a red card now. You see someone going, you know, as I, you know, as I say, to excess force. They win the ball, go through. I've said this many times now, and I know it sounds like a broken record. I don't know how people can make defenders can make tackles sometimes because it's either like you've got to slide to make the t- to make the challenge. You're running at pace, or you or your only other option is to let the tackler take take the ball, and you're beating. You're out of the game. So now that's a decision you're supposed to weigh up in real time, and it's the same with something like this. If if the ball's coming over your head, you know you know people around. You don't know exactly where they are, and you want to bring it down. You don't want to you don't want to lose possession. This is the way he's got to control the ball, and he's and he's hit someone in the face. 
Red card. It looked dangerous. It looked reckless. It's a red card in modern football. I don't like it. You're saying if no one was around him, would he have controlled it like that? If no one was around him, or even say if Firmino was half a second later, would you have still given him a red card, Hugh? For making contact with Firmino's head? No, if he hadn't made contact with his head, if he was half a second later, would you have given him a red card? Because that's what Gregor's saying about the outcome. So you're saying it's high, it's high foot, it's dangerous play. I'm making the point that his, his foot is there because he's trying to win the ball. And so you pushing, put, you're putting someone else there and therefore Griezmann is penalised by trying to win the ball be, just purely because Firmino has then come to try and win the ball. But so my point is back, the reason, he the re- the reason that he go, put... Sorry, sorry, sorry. My, my, Over to you, have the ball. My argument is the reason that he put his foot so high is because he knows he has to get to it quickly because he can, he can feel, whether it's peripheral vision or his sense on the football pitch, that there is going to be another player coming in for that ball. And if you do that, if you put your foot that high and you with the studs underside of your boot connect with someone's head, then no one's happy about it, but it's it's got to be a red card. You've got to say you can't let players put their feet that high in the air and make contact with others' heads. You just can't. Ian, what do you think? Ian, pick a side. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, 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 reason, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm with, with, uh, with Hugh on this, Gregor. Yes! No! Yeah, I'll take it back. You know the way. Yeah, I'll take it back. <laughs> 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 um, uh, it, 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 the law exists for a, a reason, and, 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 you know, it's a reason for the, the protection of of players and so you you have to apply it fairly rigorously yes i mean we all felt a little sorry for griezmann but uh but you sound, you sound too much like pierre walton there i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> uh, going back to the voice of reason ian hawking sorry, quickly that's another one and i can all keep saying this every single week now the offside matip yes you, you know think he was off about? well yeah. i think yeah, yeah, I, think it's, yeah. I think it's it's true he's he's, he's there he's affected them He's affected the play. He's affected. He's in his in his vision. He, he he's not swung. He, he could have he could have swung for the ball. He could have cleared it quite simply, or certainly he would have had the opportunity to. It changes his thought process. So, but again, Peter Walton, you've got to apply the the letter of the law. Nonsense. Yeah, yeah, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, I, look, I, I'm sure there are some VAR officials that actually would have given that offside because. It looked like Matic was trying to reach for the ball, and obviously there's a body in the way, so he doesn't he doesn't kick through Thomas Lamar to try and get to it. But you imagine if Lamar wasn't there, he he could have easily cleared it off the line. But you know we don't want goals chalked yeah, off, no, Gregor. Come on, come on. We're not, not, not going to advocate for that. It was a great game, and it needed the goal. Okay, it needed the goal. Two 0 down. It needed the goal. Um, but let me go back to the voice of reason, Ian Hawkey, once again on the penalty decision. <laughs> uh, Hermoso, the centre back, um, with the barge on Jota. Can you understand what on earth he was thinking? Um, well, this is what I said earlier that, uh, about um, Atletico panicking, which you know that's the, uh, that's partly that's partly to Liverpool's credit as well. Uh, yeah, I mean he was you know uh, they were they were they were running on empty a little bit more than Liverpool at that stage, and yeah, and it was uh, it it was panic, wasn't it? Um, uh, I mean it was, and it was certainly a penalty. I I I, I think Atletico have a small gripe as well about the one at the other end but I think that was certainly less clear cut but well you've seen them given cheap um, it would have been cheap it would have been cheap I think Ian can I just ask on the on the panicking do you think that comes from you obviously watch Atleti far more than we do on a regular basis does that is that the downside to the slightly frenzied manic all action Simeone that you know as English fans we go so great to watch Atleti they never never say die 
that great clip, for, I think, from last season of the entire team sprinting back to defend in these big games against teams that slightly get under their skin, is, is that the downside to the Simeone way? I don't think so, actually. I think it's a symptom of this, this strange transition that a very, very stable club, and stable because they've had the same manager for, for so long, is, is going through. The sort of Simeone, the Simeone miracle of the last 10 years has been to, has been to make everybody know exactly their place. And as you know, you know, defend with nine behind the ball for huge chances of not always very entertaining football. What's happened in the last couple of years with a bigger budget and, and the desire to, to play a different sort of football and less predictable football is that I think Atleti at least lose their bearings more often. There's there's a real pattern this season of of falling behind. In fact, also towards the end of last season, of falling behind and then having to chase games. You know, and Liverpool uh, was 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 the epitome of that. So I, I I think it's I think it's more a nervousness of 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 the the system having changed a bit, and you know, and the dogmas now being being challenged. They were great at coming back against Liverpool, and and in fact, it was the you know the creative players who led it, Griezmann and Joao Felix, who I thought was excellent. Um, but but I think that's it. I think I think there's a little bit of a identity crisis would be too strong. But I th- but I think a lot of a lot of sort of seasoned athletic players are, are just just adjusting a little bit to new bearings. And and you know I think Hermoso, who is sometimes a left back, sometimes a centre back in a back four, sometimes on the left side of a back three. You know, perhaps, perhaps that's what that's what what was confusing him. Yeah, I mean, look, Liverpool still got the win in the end. I think Atletico Madrid will have something to say in the return fixture in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but I should mention Alisson putting a great performance in the Liverpool goal as well, and maybe that is the reason that my original question about whether Liverpool deserved the win. I think I might, I might. Just because they went down to ten men, they had those great chances as well, and and of course it was just a silly mistake that led to Liverpool's winner. I might side with that Letty, but who knows? All I do know is we can expect, I think, a brilliant game on Sunday at Old Trafford in the Premier League as Jurgen Klopp pits his wits against Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, Paul Scholes, who I've mentioned already, uh, said at the end of that game last night, Manchester United's game, that is, if you play that way against Liverpool on Sunday, let's see what happens. I think he inferred. Liverpool would run riot. So my question is, can United beat Liverpool this weekend? Yes. Whatever you say about it, and there's a lot to say about this group of players and this manager, they do seem to have it within them to to come up with surprises, and particularly in the big games when they need it. So absolutely they could. And, you know, we've highlighted that Liverpool looked a little bit shaky defensively. Um, And, you know, not for the first time we can highlight that Man, it's a it's the kind of opportunity when Liverpool leave a lot of space in behind for Manchester United's quick players to to take advantage of that in behind. Um, but at the same time, Liverpool's front three are just on absolute fire, and Man United have to be more solid defensively if they want to have any chance of of taking three points from this game. Tom, how can United stop Liverpool? Well, they've had some good battles in the past, including last season when I think it was one of those games where we started to go, oh. Right, Luke Shaw's Luke Shaw's a proper player again, but he's going to have to have the game of his life, I think, to stop Mo Salah in that current form at the minute. It'll come down to what formation and system Solskjaer picks 
he's obviously done well in these big games before by playing the pace of Rashford uh, and Greenwood up front, whether he could pick a front three with those two and Ronaldo and maybe it sounds mad and he won't do it, but drop Bruno Fernandes, play Paul Pogba instead, place Fred and McTominay behind him and just give Pogba the job that he does very well for France of playing balls to really quick forwards and try and get in behind Liverpool and get them turned. That could maybe be a way of uh, attack or counter-attack being the best form of defence, but they're going to have to have a very good game defensively. And at the minute, Harry Maguire looks either out of form or out of fitness or out of confidence, and that doesn't bode too well, I don't think. So it'll almost certainly be 1-0 to Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, what do you think? Um, you know, the prospect of dropping Bruno Fernandes mooted by Tom there. I've got to say, d- does Cristiano Ronaldo need to start? Um, oh, I should think so, because otherwise somebody will talk to Alex Ferguson about it and it'll be all over the internet within minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was interested in what Tom said. Um, but yes, it would be it would be lovely for everybody who enjoys football to watch Pogba doing what he does for France. But the idea of him doing that against against a vigorous pressing Liverpool team, I think, is quite fanciful. I think there's a there's there's a reason why Paul Pogba does that for France because in most games the the tempo of international football is a little different and certainly different from playing a, a Jurgen Klopp Liverpool. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you you can imagine uh, the stars aligning and uh, and Manchester United pulling off a surprise, but but I think that would be very conditional on on Mohamed Salah, you know, losing all trace of his his recent form. Um, I think you know, as as Tom said, Liverpool going forward look really really threatening at the moment, and Manchester United don't look a particularly well equipped team to. To deal with that, I'm not going to rule out the back three for Manchester United. Fred and McTominay plugging the gaps, wing backs. I'm just going to say, you know, a turgid nil nil. We've seen them before in this derby match. So, you know, well, say derby match, you know what I mean? Big rivals. Um, so maybe a turgid nil nil's on the agenda for Sunday afternoon. We'll see what Solskjaer and Klopp have in store. Um, up next, we're going to get the lowdown on the Chelsea boss, Thomas Tuchel. We'll also talk Phil Foden's brilliance for Manchester City before big changes at Newcastle United. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. (laughs) 
Thomas Tuchel, rule breaker, chronicles the rise of the now Chelsea boss from his start in football management with Mainz's juniors back in 2008 to his Champions League win with the London side earlier this year. It's been uh, serialised in the Times. It's written by Tobias Schechter and Daniel Moiran. And I'm delighted to say Daniel joins us now. How are you doing, Daniel? Thanks, I'm fine. I wanted to start by asking you who Thomas Tuchel is, in, in your opinion, his personality. Well, as any manager on the top level in the world, he is a personality with difficulties and with um, very, what you can difficult to describe because he, he has to be very focused as any top manager. Um, his personality is uh, to be very focused on what uh, happens on the pitch. You know, he is not a manager who is talking a lot and who is doing um, polemics, perhaps like perhaps Jose Mourinho. Um, he is one who is very, really focused on the pitch, and that is what he wants to do. And so he is not uh, interested in doing PR in his own personality. That makes him sometimes um, a bit difficult. What do you think a key to his success is as a coach? Well, he, is, he laughs or he's very strong in uh, working in details. You know, he's um, focused on how can he work in the training sessions on what he can have in the weekend. When he started in Mainz, he didn't have to play the European um, Cup games. So he had a lot of times in the week to work in eight, nine training sessions up to the weekend and uh, you ha we you could uh, at the time it was possible to watch these training sessions and it was really fascinating to uh, follow a team that didn't know in the beginning of the week what to exactly do in the weekend and Tuchel told talked didn't tell them but he coached them to play in the weekend and that is his very very uh, specialty to to work with the team nowadays with all the games he has to play with chelsea it's really different i think he is now an expert in um, preparing a team in video sessions and during due to games uh, to to develop them in the games so he's better he's one of those managers that you think is better to react to the situation in games to react to what his opponents are doing during the 90 minutes but he has used some strange techniques as a coach over his years as well hasn't he yeah sure he um strange techniques not like um, many other managers do like walking over coal uh, hot coal or things like that he, he is um he is working on for example in mines he made a, a pitch uh, looking like a diamond so that players don't always think only in the uh, square um, they are used to they had to look ah today the the, the pitch is not um, 50 to 100 uh, yards but it's very close very uh, narrow and things like that to really form them to to play the game he wants to see in the weekend and uh, he always he never repeated um, uh, lessons it was always a new uh, detail to always have the players awake and to be aware to uh, what he the, the coach wants. He's also taken sabbaticals during his career, which is rare for some coaches. Why do you think he's taken on, I think, two occasions time away from the game? 
I think in the first sabbatical it was um, because he he didn't have a burnout, but he he, he has had the impression I, he has to have a break uh, to get uh, to to re, re uh, to recover. And in the time he noticed, oh, it's really a good chance to to uh, listen to people who can t teach him new things and so on. So it was. Uh, not planned to have a, a whole year of sabbatical. I think he wanted to start after a half a year, but um, the time made him uh, to 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 think about having this long break. Um, the second sabbatical, I think that was uh, because the Dortmund um, era was was difficult for him, and um, I think he had to to think about a lot of things and. He had, he, he had the chance to wait for the opportunity. He didn't want to uh, use the first chance. And that came and he used it in Paris. Just finally, what more can we expect from Thomas Tuchel? What more do you expect from him in his managerial career? Well, when we did write the book in German, um, he didn't have the big success with Chelsea. So we asked in the end the question, oh, will he be able to one day develop his personality to have the big successes like for example uh, coaches like Heinkes in Germany he was a young talent but didn't have the big success and then he changed in his character he developed his character and became successful now Tuchel already has this big success and that is now in the now in the English version of our book um, that uh, that he he has the big success now and I think this was very important for him this experience with uh, Chelsea um, and um, I expect he, he will have the same success uh, like Jurgen Klopp. He will uh, perhaps one day um, follow him to as a national coach in Germany. Both of them will one day be a national coach in Germany, I'm sure. But in, in, in many years, because from their heart, they are uh, club managers and want to have this every three days, a, a big game. Um, I, I think he can be as successful as Klopp. I don't know if he can be as successful as Guardiola, but in, in, in this dimension, I think all these three of them are the top coaches at the moment. So that's the lowdown on the Chelsea boss, whose team got some rhythm back with a 4-0 win over Malmo at Stamford Bridge in the Champions League last night. At Juventus are actually top of Group H with nine points from nine, Chelsea on six, Zenit three, and Malmo without a point as yet. Uh, Romelu Lukaku, his manager says, will miss a few games. Uh, we wish him well. Uh, we also saw Timo Werner injured in the match as well. But it was a routine win for Chelsea, as it was for Manchester City after their 5-1 victory over Club Bruges. PSG atop of Group A on seven points, City on six, Bruges on four, and surprisingly, I guess, RB Leipzig without a point as yet as well. But I think the main thing to take from that game was England's Phil Foden. I know we focus in on him quite a lot, but over the last few weeks, I think he's looked like the new Kevin De Bruyne. It makes me want to ask, with some of his exquisite passing and vision, could we be looking at England's best ever in the making? Gregor, as a Scotsman, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the joys of this question. Um, I think he's got some way to go. And If you're talking about, I think to, to bridge a gap to someone like Kevin De Bruyne, he's still got some way to go. But he has got incredible potential. Um, and he's just, the thing about him is he's such a different player to the kind of player that England have produced. He is, you know, a, a very much of the kind of, 
European mould and that he's so so quick and intricate and sharp and uh, twisting and turning and you know very much a player who's been brought up in Manchester, Manchester City's kind of new modern academy and he's he's just kind of his range of passing and his vision the little kind of delicate thinks and through balls that he can play I can't think of many players for England who who've done that in the past so he's he's different he's got the potential to be one of the best absolutely but the main thing is he's he's very much a different kind of player that to any that England have really produced that I can think of can you no oh he's absolutely different i just i mean yeah i don't know if it's just the fact that he's just a left-footed player who drops the shoulder but the through balls through yeah. to the the um the fullbacks on either side just dissecting about four players at once you know just threading the needle I was looking at that saying, I haven't seen this for a long time, especially from an English player, but the technique that he has to turn on the ball, the touch that he has, you know, maybe it's the players around him, of course, and the players that he has to live up to and the coach that he has as well. But I'm looking at it. I mean, I was watching that game. I was thinking, right, Gascoigne, this is the level that that we're going to get from this guy. He's going to be like, he's going to be up there in terms of his ability to change a game single-handedly. Um, because he's so young. You know, we talk about the gap to De Bruyne, but we're talking about someone that's 10 years younger. Ian, what do you think? Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I think he is special. And I, I really agree with, with Gregor that he, he does something that um, is, is really against the, you know, the, the stereotype, the caricature of, of, of the English footballer. I, I just wonder in his evolution, what, what he is going to be. I mean, the, one of the benefits of, of coming into this Manchester City team at the moment is that you uh, you, you get used to a great deal of positional flexibility. You you get played across positions. I I, I just wonder if at what point uh, Phil Foden defines himself as a midfielder who 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 specialises in through balls from deeper positions, or um, if he. If he emphasises uh, the running at opponents, um, I, I'd be I'd be really interested to to see what he ends up, how he ends up uh, defining himself, um, and that, and that will be very important to you know the national team as well because um, it, with with these very special players, there's always always a danger, especially international football, where you don't you have less time practicing together that somebody becomes such a go-to guy that that puts extra pressure on them and they become easier to sort of mark out of games. Ian's touched on a point there about what player he becomes. And if you're making comparisons to Kevin De Bruyne, initially when he was at City and looking so brilliant, there was the kind of bursting past people and people thought he would score quite a lot of goals from midfield, running from midfield. And then he kind of made his name as the guy, the midfielder, who never got the assist, but always had the second assist, the pass before the pass. He split the team wide open for a winger running in behind who then cut the ball across for someone to score a tap in. That's maybe what we're seeing from Phil Foden a little bit more. When it comes to England, we talked about this recently. If he's going to play that game, England need to play the players around him who are going to make those runs in behind because otherwise he's completely wasted in that position. He has that for Manchester City. That's why he looks so brilliant. I think that position centrally is all about the players you have around you. Otherwise, like like last season, if you don't have those runners, like last season, he'd be better playing in a more prominent forward position, uh, coming in off one of the wings and scoring some goals. But I mean, the main thing is that he is now, 
I mean, City have got an embarrassment of riches in terms of players, but he's now got to be, it's the old cliche, first name on the team sheet. He's not far off being that, which when you consider all the players they've got, that is probably the one of the most striking things. The main thing, though, is 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 bravery. You know, there was so much conversation for so long about you know desire to see him to see him coming in, you know, to get an opportunity. And you know, because there's always a question mark. Then you know he's got the talent. You see it in glimpses, and then he's got he's he's getting the run of games, and he's he's making the difference in the biggest games. You can see him. He wants he wants the ball. He wants to make the difference. Um, that's the biggest thing because you can be the best player, you know, the best, the most talented player, but marrying it with that kind of that hunger and desire and bravery, that that's that's what's going to make him special. I think he will be a special player. We've been speaking about him a lot recently, but I thought that performance deserved a mention. Um, and it's a great win for Manchester City, of course, doing very well in the Champions League. Um, but up next, we're going to talk about Newcastle United, someone who could be a team that could be doing well in the Champions League sooner rather than later. But their manager, Steve Bruce, has gone. The question is, who's coming in? So, Newcastle have finally made the decision that just had to happen. We all knew was going to happen, but somehow took too long and finally dismissed their manager, Steve Bruce. Reportedly, the new owners were happy with him to continue uh, in the relegation battle, but they clearly didn't actually understand the level of sentiment on the ground uh, in the Northeast. They were advised that this was the right decision to make, and it has been made. The question I want to ask you guys about Steve Bruce, firstly, is whether you feel he's harshly treated by the fans during his time at Newcastle in a non-football context. As a man, do you think he's been treated harshly, Tom? I think he probably has, but I think that's unfortunately one of the uglier sides of football that we lose we lose a bit of sense of human decency quite a lot of time, don't we, when passion, passion runs high. And we talk about the passion that Newcastle fans have for the game and for their club. And I think probably sometimes... You know, we all lose sight of it, and managers managers cop more abuse than anyone else. And I think we forget that quite a lot of the time. He, in particular, seems to have had a very rough ride. And reading some of his quotes, talking about his time there, and considering his future as a manager because of the abuse that he took from the club that he supported as a boy, that's got to be incredibly difficult for anyone. And so I think. Yes, is probably the answer, but also I've got to say that it's easy for us to sit back and reflect now, now that he's gone and say, oh, they didn't they treat him harshly? Because we all as football fans probably do say and react in a way that when we'd reflect on it afterwards, we'd probably not uh, not be that impressed with ourselves. Do you think then, Gregor, he was harshly treated by the club in a football context? He's finished 12th, he's finished 13th. I think he knew he was getting into he knew the kind of the context that Mike Ashley was trying to sell the club for so long, that his remit was to stay in the Premier League, that he wasn't going to have much money to spend, um, and that he was from day one going to be perceived as someone who was very fortunate to have been given the job in the first place and was Mike Ashley's man. So I think I don't know was he harshly treated by the club? I think gave him a chance that no one else would have. They gave him a job in the Premier League that no other club in the Premier League would have. Let's be honest about that. The only time he's ever really, you know, he's taken clubs to the Premier League. I think Sunderland were in the Premier League, but he's largely taken Hull, taken Birmingham to the Premier League. Um, And he's been very successful in doing that. Um, His record in the Premier League is slightly different. 
so I, I just think it was a it was an un- unhappy marriage from the get go. And yes, he was treated badly by the fans, uh, but you can also understand the fans' anger and their kind of the fact the fact that he was an emblem of the Mike Ashley era. Um, but you know, the, you see all the kind of comparisons with with Rafa Benitez doing the doing the rounds now, and that it was hugely similar record uh, in his time in their times as, as managers and, the, and the, the, the different kind of perceptions of those two guys are vast because Rafa Benitez was like a, a an emblem of hope of what you know a big character who's done so much in, in management at the top level um, and you know if Mike Ashley was to have backed him supported him the club could have gone in a very different direction he left because he he became exasperated. Steve Bruce came in, and this is what you know. This is what this is where Newcastle were. This is he was an emblem of what Newcastle were, just mediocrity. So I can understand that that unhappiness too. But Tom's right. This is just this is just symptomatic of, of football as a as a whole. The human decency does go out the window, and Steve Bruce was obviously very hurt. His family are, you know, he's, he's a Geordie. His family are Geordies. Uh, it must be very difficult for them over the last couple of years to hear the hear the abuse that he's had to put up with, um, and I think really, as I said it last week, it's better for all parties. It's better for him that he's that he's gone and Newcastle move on. But he should he should be looked back upon as someone who's done a good job in keeping Newcastle in the league in the, in the Premier League with the resources they had. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Uh, I, I, know, I know the Newcastle fans didn't get along with Steve Bruce. There was a sense, though, that from the day of his appointment, they didn't want him to be the manager. And that just, I think, snowballed from there. Um, look, attention now turns to who might take his place in the Newcastle dugout. The names, Lucien Favre, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Eddie Howe were all on the list. I've heard people mention the likes of Roy Hodgson, Sam Allardyce. Um, Gus Hiddink is someone that I think might come in and do a decent job. Um, Ian, what type of manager, before we talk about the individual names, what type of person do Newcastle need now and how long for? It's got to be a self-start, hasn't it? It's a difficult time to come in, um, you know, what, uh, seven, eight games into a season um, with with the club not in a terribly healthy position in the table. So you've got to be able to react quickly um, be be extremely pragmatic because it's it's a it's a squad with a lot of flaws in it, um, and 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 I think to 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 get the gig, you've almost certainly got to persuade a set of very new owners with deep pockets that you have a very clear strategy of what they need to do in the January window and what and who specifically is achievable in that. In which case. I think flaunting your contacts book is probably quite an important thing to do as well. So, so you know, there's there's two strands to it, and and I think for the the first thing, there is an element of risk if you bring in somebody who doesn't know the Premier League and doesn't know English football. Um, but for the second thing, in other words, the you know the pull in the in the January rescue, um, uh, you know, there's obviously quite likely to be an advantage if you have, you know, a sort of sphere of international knowledge and 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 contacts. Do you agree with that, Tom and Gregor? Do you think it, it needs to be someone with that allure, international contacts book? I think they've got two choices. I think they have someone who's a, a short-term appointment, like a, a, 
as you say, Goose Hiddink, someone who's done this before in the past, whether he would do it or not. I still think Graham Jones has a has a chance of of holding on to this for a, for a little while longer because you know he came in made quite a big impact last year. He was kind of parachuted in. Um, he's a good coach. He's had a difficult one one uh, one one difficult experience in management at Luton Town. Uh, but he's a hugely respected coach, so there's a possibility that that can continue because it's a difficult one, very difficult one. Unless they can get someone like, I think, of all the all the names that have been touted, Stephen Gerrard, who has the stature, knows the Premier League, as Ian's saying, and could take them on the journey. He's kind of he, he's taken Rangers from a low a low ebb and and a, a club of similar size and stature and potential, and he's taken them. Is, is he a proven coach? He's improved them greatly. I think he's proven that he has the stature and the presence and the ability to take all of the weight of the expectation and deal with it and, and form a good, a very uh, competent staff, working staff around him. Gary McAllister, Michael Beale. Very, you know, that's important. Steve Bruce, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be harsh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it looks... Steve Bruce kind of did that in the end, or he was he was forced to do that by bringing you know if you're not if you're not a kind of an out and out head coach who's going to be you know a modern forward thinking coach you've got to bring people in who are and I think Stephen Gerrard has admitted as much there are, are more experienced co- coaches around him and so he's brought them in and he lets them get on with what they do and he he takes the reins when it when it matters just before games and you know picking the team or not that there's nothing wrong with that I think Stephen Gerrard could go on the journey with them. But whether they can get him or not is a different question, and I think he's quite uniquely placed in that he would be. In, I think he'd be interested, but if you're looking for someone for the next stage, they won't be interested now. So you need someone who's like a a here and now guy, who's also like not a Steve Bruce <laughs> or not a I don't know. A Sam, like people joke, a Sam Allardyce, a real firefighter, because that would look ludicrous at the moment. It's got to be someone. Either someone with a short term in mind who's willing to take it or someone who can take them on a journey. It's not easy. Well, Martin Hardy's written that Paolo Fonseca is in talks uh, in the last 24 hours with the club. And I mean, Ian, I was reading your piece uh, from earlier in the summer about Fonseca when he was linked with the Tottenham job. Do you think he'd be a good choice? You know, is he a good marriage of all those things that we're talking about that Newcastle are looking for? Possibly not uh, all of them. I mean, simply because, and you know, it's not his fault, but he's a. He's pretty inexperienced in a Premier League relegation dogfight because um, he's never, you know, he's never done it before. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's an enterprising guy, and I, I think he's a. People talk of him as, as an excellent uh, motivator. He's, he's pretty shrewd. He's, um, and and you know his 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 football brand, if you like, is the kind of thing that Newcastle have been crying out for. Um, for years and years, uh, but you know, there's there there is a there, there's an element of risk, isn't there, by bringing in somebody who who hasn't worked in the Premier League and 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 has to you know has to build a relationship very quickly with a new set of owners and a, a, you know, an enormous fan base, which is very demanding, and and beneath that being demanding, a little bit edgy because of where the club find themselves at the moment. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think, I think, from where he's been, he, you know, he's been at big, demanding clubs, Roma, Shakhtar, um, 
you know, I think I think you'd look at Newcastle and think, oh yeah, this is this is this is very much a fit for me. Just finally on this, then, how, how big a decision is this for Newcastle United? You know, you make the choice to have someone, maybe for a couple of years, maybe three years, who can start the process, or is it all about the rest of this season and making an appointment that's going to keep you in the Premier League rather than setting yourself up for this revolution? At Newcastle, what, what what sort of manager would you appoint if you were uh, you were in charge of the club, Tom? It's all about survival. I think Gregor said it on a recent podcast that they're in a relegation fight, and I was looking at some of the fixtures. They've got some, you know, strange thing to say, winnable games when they've got a squad as poor as theirs. But they end the season, they end the year, sorry, in that tricky Christmas period with games against Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Leicester, and Everton. And is that old adage of, you know, whoever's bottom at Christmas, like that's, that is not fun. And they've got all those games to come before they can spend any of these millions on bringing in new players. So I would be ringing Roy Hodgson, ringing people who know the Premier League. And so, I mean, why not Roy Hodgson? Come on. You're, you're, mate, you're suggesting Steven Gerrard, who's been a manager for like 20 minutes. And like I'm suggesting a guy who's been a manager for years and has kept people in the Premier League. Yeah, but optics are important just now. If you want to get the, if you want to reinvigorate that that stadium full of full of fans desperate, the fans in tears at the, in May because they've had three different managers and they've gone down bollocks to optics. That's the only optic that's going to matter if they're still in the Premier League. You I'm said sorry, it yourself. You come in and you're the richest club in the world, and you appoint Roy Hodgson as your manager is. Stark raving bonkers. <laughs> he was ushered out of the door into retirement by Crystal Palace in the summer. I said he's the kind of guy with the experience who'd keep them in the Premier League. You're talking about a guy who's been a manager for a year. And I mean, I'm not sure the optics of Steven Gerrard are any better. A Liverpool legend who's been a manager for a bit in the Scottish Premier Premiership. Like, I'm not I think sure Newcastle the optics fans would welcome, welcome him in with open arms. <laughs> I mean, fine. I'd be looking for someone who would keep them in the Premier League. But this is why it's hard. This is what I've, this is what I'm saying. It, as I say, if you want to go for the, for the tried and tested guys who are like the firefighters, it's a bad move from my point of view. Because if it goes goes wrong, then you, you know it's, <laughs> it goes wrong very badly. I think you look. I mean, I don't know much about Fonseca. I don't know. There'll be there'll be people, you know, across Europe that there'll be that that will have good reputations and they'll be coming. There's still a long part of the season to go. They'll have money to spend in January. And you could be thinking, yeah, they're like a midterm appointment and we'll see where they go. But Tom's right, it is about survival. Um and it's very hard to look at someone and think they're going to be their long term manager unless there's someone like Steven Gerrard who has the stature and the potential to go on that journey with them. So it's not easy. It's not easy, but survival is the key because they are up a creek. Well, let's give the deciding word on this to today's voice of reason, Ian Hawkey. Who would you go for? <laughs> is it that interim manager for a, a couple of years? Is it all about survival, like Tom says? No, I'm afraid I'm going to start with a phrase I agree with, and it's Tom. I'm not sure. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm a huge admirer of Roy Hodgson, and and what oh what God. Newcastle should do is. Look, exactly what he did with Fulham, which was turn them from a relegation bound, you know, it was, it was, they were, they were as good as down into a club who reached a European final in a short time. Today's firefighter can be, can be tomorrow's swashbuckler. 
I love it. On that bombshell, <laughs> Ian Hawkey, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, thank you for being with me on this episode of the Game Podcast. Um, listen, we will be back with you on Monday. Remember, though, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. And for more of our award winning journalism, get that subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times right now. If you do so, you'll get yourself one month free. So go online, check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game um, you can get yourself started there and we will see you on monday take care as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.